going to get right into the message this morning. There's a couple reasons for that. So we have started in on our Revelation series. In the end, a new beginning. And we're taking a hopeful and a worshipful look at this book at the end of our Bible. But I'm going to give you guys a heads up. Today, you're going to need your seatbelts on. Okay? This will be the longest sermon I've ever given. Period. Okay? Yep, just giving you a heads up. And there's a reason for that. Okay? Um, we're going to cover two chapters today. We're going to cover Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And there's a couple reasons I'm doing that. There's one main reason, though. There is one message that comes from these two chapters. I've seen people split these up, but I think the power comes from looking at this whole message to the churches together. And the message is an interesting one. Because over and over and over, you hear this word conquer. And if you just look at the word conquer, you're like, yes, let's conquer. Images of Braveheart and battle and all kinds of big conquering types of things. And that's not what John's talking about. The conquering that John is calling us to is a conquering by endurance. Just continuing. Just keep going. Don't quit. That's conquering. Just stay in the game. And that's what we're going to look at in Revelation 2 and 3. So let's dive right in. Uh, Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, so the first part of this is to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus at the time was known for having a whole lot of money. And that whole lot of money was creeping into the practices of the church. And so John writes them this letter. And he says, this message is from someone who's in authority. And what's important and interesting is John's saying, I'm not the one in authority. Jesus is the one in authority. And he's writing this letter to a group of people that think the emperor is one in authority. And he says, no, no, no. You want to know who's in charge? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to prove it when he comes back. He's the one in authority. And he says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. Verse 2 is a pretty good checklist for a church. Things that we should be doing, roles that we should be filling. Works, toil, patient endurance, and testing for evildoers. Works and toil, for those of you who are here the last couple days as we did the garage sale, check. We've got some work. We've got some toil, right? But to be clear, he's talking about not just work for the church itself, but toil and work for those outside of the church as well. That is a role that we are called to fill as a church. The third one is patient endurance. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, this last one's a really important one that I don't know that we think about often enough. Are we testing for evildoers? As we gather together as a group of people, in other words, are we looking for the wolves among the sheep? Are we looking who are coming into the church to draw people away from Jesus, to draw people away from the Word of God? That's one of our jobs when we come together. Absolutely, yes, to draw people to Jesus, but also to look for those that are trying to do the opposite. Patient endurance. Like I said, we'd get to it. The word here is hupomone, and it means patience or steadfastness. Anyone excited about this at all? No. I've never met anyone who gets excited about patience or endurance. And you're going to hear this over and over and over again. Church, your job is to patiently endure and wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. God's race is not won quickly. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. Okay? We had Brother Michael Walls in the first service. He ran a half marathon yesterday. If you've ever run a half marathon, a full marathon, if you've done any kind of competitive event that takes hours and hours or sometimes days and days and it just keeps going, you know what this feels like. You just have to endure. You just have to keep going. This is not a race that is won quickly. Verse 3, I also know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. So when I look at this, I picture this. Have you guys ever seen a waiting room that has people in it that look like this? No! We're walking into a waiting room and see a bunch of people like smiling and happy and like conversing with each other. 
Like no one's face here is buried in their phone, right? They're all happy. They're excited to be waiting. This is what John is saying to us. I want you to sit in the waiting room. I want you to be happy about it. I want you to have joy. I want you to endure patiently and well. This is how you conquer. To be awake and alert and alive and actually full of joy as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 4. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love that you had at first. You'll notice this about these letters. There's some good, some encouraging message to the churches. And there's some that says you should work on this. And there's a lot here. It says you've forgotten the love that you started with, church. And the reminder is don't abandon agape love. That's the love that's referenced here. Okay? Agape love is a certain type of love. It is a self giving love. He says, church, you've forgotten to give yourselves. You got a whole lot of money, right? There's a lot of money in the area, but you're not giving of that and yourselves for those around you. And church, that's your job. Agape, self-giving love. Now to encourage you, you have to remember that the source of that isn't you and it's not me. It's God. So if we find that we're struggling a little bit with this, I don't want to give of myself to whoever that is. Say, God, I need you to help me with this. I need you to fill me with this love that you have for so-and-so. He's the one who provides agape love for us to give as a church and as individuals. Verse 5, remember then from what you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Pretty strong words, okay? But you'll notice there is a chance here. Okay, so I like this. We're in the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, and we still have this image of God as a God of second chances. But don't wait for the third chance. What he's saying to us is, yes, God is still a God of grace and mercy, but don't wait this one out. The time to change is now. The time to repent is now. The time to show God love is right now. Don't put this on your to-do list. Do it now. Verse 6, yet this is to your credit, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. If you just look at this, this is weird. How could hate ever be to our credit? Once you notice what he's saying, the word is meseo, means hate, detest, or reject. Hate's a tough word. In English, Greek, it doesn't matter. It's just a tough, tough word. He's saying you hate the works, not the worker. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing. You don't hate the Nicolaitans. You might have heard the phrase, hate the sin, not the sinner. Same idea. Hate what they're doing, not the people who do it. Okay? That's what he's talking about with hate. Now, who are these Nicolaitans? It's a little unclear. To be honest, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because no one's exactly sure. This is a great thing for you guys to consider with your small groups, by the way. Uh, two different theories on who the Nicolaitans are. The first theory is this. They're a sect of people who followed a guy named Nicholas. Interestingly enough, Nicholas's name means one who conquers the people. And so you notice John's giving a message of a totally different type of conquering. And Nicholas was encouraging people to indulge themselves. Doesn't matter. Do what you want. Second theory is a group of people that were doing, um, the root word here is Nicola, and it means let us eat. And what these people were doing, they were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, okay? Like I said, we don't know which Nicolaitans this is referring to, but you can notice there's one thing in common with these two. They're indulging themselves. They're doing what they think is right. And John says, that's not what you're supposed to be doing, church. And so it's right for you to be hating these type of self-indulgences. Now you'll notice, though, there's a really interesting checklist that develops just for this first church. We've got love on the list, and we've got hate on the list. And he says to them, you've missed the loved one, but you got hate down. Think about this. If we got a report card as a church, and it showed this. Love? I don't know. But you're good at that hate thing. This would hurt. And I think there's a lot of churches that would get this type of report card. So many Christians love to hate on what that group of people are doing and hate what's going on over there. But they've totally missed the first part. And John says, no, you've got to get back to a self-giving love. Love is the most important thing on that list. You've got to check that box. Verse 7, But anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
To everyone who conquers, I'll give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Here's that word, conquer. The word is nikao, means to be victorious, win the case. This word is actually used to describe if you won a legal case back in the day. To prevail, to win. And this is exciting, kind of gets us all fired up. And we're like, what is the deal with this conquering? We've got to turn back the pages, go back to Romans. You get another use of the same word that gives us a little bit of a glimpse on what this conquering looks like. Romans 3, 4. Although everyone's a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. That word prevail is nikao. Okay? So we get a glimpse here of what it looks like to conquer with God. It's to let God be proven true. You notice it doesn't say to prove God true. We can't do that on our own. What we can do is testify to his goodness, to his love, and let him be proven true. That's what it looks like to conquer, to persist in our faith. But if there's a conquering, there's a battle, right? You've got to win something, and there is a battle. But it is not between you and anyone else. It's not between me and anyone else. It's a battle between God and Satan. And this is a battle that is waged by God. It's waged by Jesus Christ and his followers, following his word. How do we win? Starting to see this a little bit more, get a fuller picture of this. We win by endurance despite tribulation. Keep going, even when things get tough. You hit a speed bump, keep going. You got a hurdle in front of you, jump over it. Keep going. This is what conquering looks like. In the word of journey, and no, I'm not going to sing it, don't stop believing, right? Just keep the faith. Regardless of what those around you tell you, regardless of how society is described by some as a post-Christian society, don't quit. Don't quit. Keep your faith, church. Don't give up on your belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So now we've moved on to Smyrna. What's going on in Smyrna? They had a lot of money and they had a lot of Jews. And the issue there is there's a lot of conflict between those Jews and those Christians. So John writes this, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you're rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Strong words, strong words. I want to put this idea of poor but rich in terms that might make sense to you. So I want you guys to take a guess at the median annual household income in the world. So this isn't just the United States. I want you to think about the whole world. What is the medium amount made in that household for the whole year? Take a guess. What do you think it is? Say eight grand? Very close. Any other guesses? Did you say 15? Six. Six. Yeah, it's 10. There it is. $10,000 is the median annual household income in the world. Remember, that's a median. So there's a lot below and there's a lot above. In the United States last year, the median annual household income was $59,000 a year. Let me put this in further terms. American median, so that $59,000, is over 40 times the lowest 10 countries in the world, all of which happen to be in sub-Saharan Africa. For those of us who consider ourselves poor, John says, you're rich. We are blessed. If we live here, in this gorgeous place, in this country, we are rich. And John is reminding us of that. There are so many people that do not have and you are rich. And then the synagogue of Satan deal. Strong words. What's the deal? So there's a lot of Jews, like I said, in that area. What they were doing is they were denouncing Christians specifically to the Roman officials to get the officials to arrest them, to persecute them, or worse. Uh, specifically, this happened to a bishop whose name was Polycarp, and he lost his life because the Jews were saying things that were false about him to the Roman officials, and he paid with it very dearly. And so John's writing to them, he's saying, look, if you're doing this, if you're persecuting Christians, you are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have affliction. 
Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is again reminding them, you might suffer. He's saying to some, you will suffer. But keep the faith. Don't stop believing. Just keep going, even if you are pushed or tested or tried in your faith. Don't give up. Verse 11, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. What is the second death? Does not sound comfortable at all, right? Wait for it. If you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to do that. You can look at Revelation 20 and 21, and we're going to talk about it here when we get there. But he's referring to something that's coming later on in Revelation 20 and 21. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we've moved now to another city. We've moved to uh, Pergamum, and they had, and they really have now, a lot of altars. If you've traveled in this area of the world, uh, Greek islands, Turkey, you'll still see a lot of these left-behind altars, and back at the time, there was a ton of them, absolute ton of them. And so uh, John writes this, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, Yet you're holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. Strong words, Satan's throne, Satan lives where you are, what is he talking about? So he's probably describing what was an altar to Zeus and Athena. It's a huge altar. It had images of Zeus and, and his daughter Athena. Now, it's interesting that there was a, probably a huge earthquake that took that thing down. Um, it is no longer there. There are pieces of it that were recovered that ironically are in Berlin, of all places. But this is a huge altar where people would go and worship Zeus and worship Athena. And John's saying, if you're doing that, that's where Satan is. We are called to believe only in Yahweh, God, his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the great three in one. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. So what's the deal with the bees? Balaam and Balak, we don't have time to get into this in depth, but there's two main things that Balaam was teaching. Okay, the first one is idolatry or licentiousness. You'll notice in here a lot of language that's just frankly sexual language and the reason for that is more metaphorical than it is literal okay what he's saying in other words is that if you believe in something that is not god if you are bowing down before false gods or idols you're cheating on god you're just cheating on him and if you want if you're interested in learning more about why this language is used if you look back in the old testament in the prophetic books particularly books like hosea you see this type of language used again and again it's more metaphorical and it is literal. There is some literal stuff going on. Another conversation for another place. But really, he's talking about cheating on God. He's saying, don't do that. If you bow your knee, if you bow your heart, you bow your mind before anything other than God, what he says you're supposed to be doing, you're cheating on him. That's got to stop. Other thing Balaam was teaching was coveting. That's wanting or really needing something that you don't have. And we're reminded here that that is wrong, 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 and wrong. Verses 15 to 16. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There they are again. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. This word repentance shows up quite a bit. It's so critical that you understand what it means. Repentance means to turn around. A full 180. Let me put this a little bit differently. If as Christians we're still repeatedly committing sins that we did before we were Christians, we have not fully repented. A repentance is a complete 180, going the other direction. And maybe this happened to you. Maybe you've seen other people do this. You've seen someone come to faith and you've described them. I heard people describe a new Christian as a totally different person. That's repentance. That they literally look and seem and act different. And John's saying, that's right. If we are Christians, we should look different than we did before we were Christians. Verse 17. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden mana. And I'll give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what's the deal with the mana and the stone? The mana 
As you might remember from when God's people were wandering in the wilderness to get to the promised land, God sent them manna. It was quite tasty fuel for the journey. It was something to get them there. It was God's way of providing for them on their journey. And so I think this is God saying to us, even as you wait for the coming of my son again, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you fuel. And that's what that manna represents. The stone's a little bit interesting. The word here is sephos, and it means stone or badge or token. You might think of it like a ticket. And what it does is it admits the bearer or the holder to special privileges. It gets you in. Let me give you an example. When I was in college, there were two Thanksgiving, got a really, really cool blessing from my parents. Uh, there were two different Thanksgivings where I got to fly to New York and met my family there. They flew from the West Coast. I flew from Virginia. And I walked into a hotel room and my family was there and we got to be together for Thanksgiving in New York City. And this was not something we did a lot, but we did it twice and I'll never forget both trips. But I remember one trip in specifically. I should confess to you guys first, I am a huge Lion King fan. Always have been since it came out, just loved the movie. And I walked into this room, and my dad was there, my mom was there, my sister was there. My dad handed me a ticket. And on that ticket was admission to get into Lion King on Broadway, and it had just been released like a month or two before. And I got to tell you guys, I felt like the richest kid in New York. I was so happy, because this is not something we usually did. And I got to get in. I got to go. I got a gift. I got a ticket. When you think about our faith and what Jesus Christ has done for us, it's that times a million. That's the stone. The stone is something that has Jesus' name on it. And if we believe in his name, if we believe that God is who he says he is, as a God who saves, we have the ticket to get in, to be with him forever. That's this stone. Verses 18 to 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patience, endurance. There it is again. I know that your last works are greater than the first. So Thyatira is known for a couple things. Idolatry, you've seen that before, and trade guilds. Now, trade guilds on their own aren't necessarily a bad thing, right? What was going on with these particular trade guilds is you'd get into this organization and they had a series of beliefs. And those series of beliefs were conflicting with what Christians believed from the Word of God. And so what was happening is Christians were getting into that organization because they wanted to be part of it. They wanted to associate with those people, maybe get some of the benefits. And as they did that, some of those beliefs, outside beliefs, started to creep into their thinking and their behavior. And as you can imagine, that's a big problem. And so John writes this. I want you to note the roles of the church. Similar to before, you'll see a couple things in common. Uh, the church's job is love. This is agape, self-giving love. Faith, just continuing to believe. Service, again, both service inside and outside of the church. And this last one is the super fun one. Patient endurance. Being awake and alert and having joy inside of that waiting room. That's the church's job. Encouraging thing, I love that John points out that the last thing you guys have done is better than the first thing. This idea is that there's always room for improvement for the church and for individuals, right? So remember, never stop trying to get better. And when I say better here, we're talking about being more and more like Jesus Christ. This is why as Christians, we do not believe that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We don't believe that. We believe you can absolutely always learn always grow, and John's encouraging us to do that. Always continue to try to get better. Verse 20, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who is this lady, Jezebel? She was the Canaanite wife of Ahab, and one of the things she was doing was attempting to lead God's people, the Israelites, into idolatry. The beliefs that she brought in from her Canaanite background, she was trying to spread those to the Israelites. Like I said, this imagery is more metaphorical than it is literal, and that's a problem. And one of the things the church is doing, John writes, is you're condoning it, you are okay with it. Now this is a message that absolutely still rings true today. The church can't condone sin no matter what it is. 
back then, now. God's the one who set the rules. He's the one who wrote this book, mediated by the Holy Spirit. If you guys have spent any time with me, you've probably heard me use this phrase that's on this hat. I just work here. I didn't set the rules. I just work here. And as Christians, there's a part of this that rings true for how we live this book out. Because there's some stuff in this book that's hard. Stuff that's hard for me to live out. But we have to stand and say, look, I didn't set the rules. God did. I believe in them 100%. And we can't condone sin. And there are too many churches today that have decided there are parts of this book that they are wiping out. That's not the church's job. The church's job is to follow this book in its entirety. To remember that he set the rules and we just work here and we just live them out. Lovingly, absolutely. Don't forget that message, right? That we are called to not hate the worker, not hate the sinner, not hate the person, but we cannot ever condone sin. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. So the reminder here, a God of second chances, Jezebel had a time to repent, to change, but how much time? Remember, it's revelation. Don't wait for the third chance. The time to repent is now. Not tomorrow, now. It's time to change now. Next two verses, 22 to 23. Beware, I'm throwing her on a bed. Those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. Yeesh. This is tough. Some of these verses, they're just hard. They're hard to read. They're hard to understand. Again, remember that a lot of this is more metaphorical than it is literal, but you have to see here that God is not messing around. God's not messing around. We talked about this last week. This is not a weak Jesus. God is not messing around and the time for us to change and turn our eyes towards him is right now second half of verse 23 and all the churches will know that i'm the one who searches minds and hearts and i'll give to each of you as your works deserve there's an interesting concept the statement that is both encouraging or discouraging it just depends where you're at god sees your mind and he sees your heart doesn't see necessarily what you're showing the rest of us, right? Your clothing, smile on your face, maybe the lack thereof. He sees right through all of that to your mind and your heart. The question for you is this. Are you okay with that? Are we okay that God sees our minds and he sees our hearts? The stuff we don't talk about. If we're okay with that, we're in a good place. If we're not, we should look at what that thing is. We might have something to work on. We might have something to lay before God and say, I need you to help me with this. Because I know you see my mind and my heart, and I want to be good with that. I want to be okay with that. It's a great indicator of where you're at with the Lord. Verse 24 to 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. This image here of holding fast. How many of you guys like rock climbing? Any other rock climbing fans in here? Just me? Okay, fair enough. There's one more. Awesome. So I learned rock climbing in college. Absolutely love it. Wish I did more of it. I'm super excited. My three-year-old's already climbing up rock walls. I can't wait till I get her to the big stuff. But if you've gone rock climbing, you know that one of the fascinating parts, at least for me, is that when you climb, you're not always fully connected to the wall. So ideally, you have like maybe a couple feet, like one arm, and sometimes you'll lose contact, right? So you might have just like one foot and one arm, and sometimes things really get crazy. You're holding on with one hand, and all you have connecting you to that wall or to that rock is one hand, and it's both exhilarating and scary at the same time. I think that's what John's saying to the church. Hold on. Even when things get tough, even when there's only one point of contact or two points of contact, when you're just barely making it. I think it's a message to the church. I think it's a message to individuals. Maybe you're at a point where you're just barely holding on. You're saying, don't let go. Do not let go. Keep the faith. Keep climbing. Keep reaching out to the Lord. 
verses 26, 27. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered. This is encouraging if we remember that it's a condition. So what we're being told here is if we prove that God's true, if we continue to testify to who God is, we receive the authority of God. If we're out there testifying to the goodness of God and the truth of God, we receive God's authority. If we are not, we don't. Enough said. Verses 28 to 29. Even as I also received authority from my Father, to the one who conquers I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So this image, this idea of the morning star, if you're wondering what that means, join the club. No one really knows what the morning star is talking about. Uh, when I read it, I picture an actual morning star. If you guys have ever seen these, these are when you get up really early in the morning. This morning was one of these for me. And you look outside and there's like that one holdout star. Like that one that you're like, I don't, you should be going to sleep. What's the deal with you? It's daytime, right? But it's hanging out up there. And it's bright. It's the only one and it's alone. I think John's saying that to the church. Even if you're the only star even if you're the only bright light in a world that is changing around you, don't go out. Don't give up. Keep shining your light bright in the world, in your city, in your community, in your neighborhood. Keep shining bright. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. So now we're talking to Sardis. Sardis is a very commercial city, and that's impacting what's going on in the church. So John writes this in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Wake up. We live in an age where we are blessed to pick up these phones, whether it's your cell phone, whether it's home phone, most phones have caller ID now, and the phone rings and you look at it, you're like, yeesh, that's so-and-so. I don't know if I want to answer that one. I always say that's why God made voicemail, okay? But the message here from John is, church, this is a call you got to take. God's calling, he's trying to get your attention, and you need to answer it now. Don't send this one to voicemail. You've got to get this, and you've got to change, and the time to do it is right now. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So this image of God and thief, not an image or an idea that I'm generally comfortable with, right? Don't think about God as someone who is a thief. Understand about this, about what he's saying. He's not saying that God is coming to steal something from you or from me. This isn't about stealing. The reason he uses this image is the city of Sardis was twice taken by stealth. Sneak attack, in other words. The city was taken over. They never saw it coming. So the idea of God coming as a surprise, because that's what this is about, would have really gotten their attention. This is about God coming in such a way that we are never going to see it coming. It's going to be a complete and total surprise. And so he says, get ready right now. Verse 4. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. All right, so this idea of soiling and dressed in white. How many of you guys use spray and wash? Am I the only clown in here? Thank God. Awesome. Okay, so spray and wash got me through college, pretty much my entire bachelor existence. Okay, because I'd spill something on myself, like a shirt or pants, and I'd just go home and I'd take this stuff and wipe it on there. And then when I got around to washing those clothes, you know, in like two or three weeks, it would come out of the washing machine or the dryer and boop, all clean, right? All I'd do is just put this stuff on it. And John is writing to the church, he's saying, there's no such thing as a spiritual spray and wash, folks. It doesn't work like this. For those of you who are following Jesus Christ when he shows up, you're good. For those of you who are already following him, you will walk with the one who wears holy white 
and that is Jesus. Verse 5, if you conquer, you'll be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. There's that conquering again, and there's going to be a clothing, but you have to remember there's a condition in here. It's a really important condition. Jesus is saying, if you confess my name, I'll confess your name before God. In other words, if you go around your daily life and you're living in the name of Jesus, if you're using the name Jesus, he will confess your name to Father God. This is a big condition. How often do you use the name Jesus in your weekly life? Your daily life? Face to face? Digitally? Your conversation? Whatever that looks like. How often are you confessing the name of Jesus Christ? If we confess his name, he will confess ours. We don't, he won't. Enough said. Verse 6, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You may have noticed that sentence shows up over and over and over again, reminding us of the importance of the Spirit. And I think it's also a good reminder the Spirit is a very good reason to go to church. I found this comic of a guy, I don't know who it is, trying to get into heaven. I don't know if it's Jesus or Peter. He's sitting there at the gates and he says, hold on says here that you only went to church so you could get your children into a good school. How often do we run into people who go to church for all the wrong reasons? You want a good reason? The Spirit. When we come together and worship, we learn from the Word, we come to be there for each other in each other's lives, the Spirit shows up. The Spirit shows up when we come together as a church. It's a wonderful reason to show up at church. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We've moved on to Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, and they have got a lot of a couple things, a lot of money and a lot of Jews. So like I said, there was a lot of conflict between those Jews and those Christians. And John writes this, I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I love this image of Jesus as an open door. Just a completely open door. And even in Revelation, he's saying the door remains open. And if there is anyone in here who has not walked through that open door, may today be the day you do that. As we read through this book together and you think about this, don't wait to run through the open door into those open arms. After service, I will be back through those doors that are ironically closed right now. If you have questions about this, you want to talk about this, you want to pray about what this looks like, please come find me. Because we're reminded here that Jesus is that open door and that door remains open and he wants you to run through it right into his big, welcoming, loving arms. Verse 9. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but are lying. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. It's an interesting idea. To have Jews who are not acting like Jews come and bow before Christians? What's this about? He's saying these Jews are not really Jews because they've forgotten that one thing. That one part of the law, and that is love. And they're going to learn, and they're going to learn something from you. And interesting enough, you know, because Jews, remember, all they thought was they knew it all. They had the whole Old Testament down, and they knew everything. And there's a reminder over and over again in the New Testament that they don't know everything. They've forgotten that one thing. And it's a big, important thing, and it's agape love. And he said, there's going to come a point in time where Jews are going to bow because they're going to see God's love for you. The Jews actually have a chance in this city, just as they do now, just as the rest of the world has that chance. And the thing that they're going to learn is how much God loves you. So think about what that means even for you as a witness. Don't put all the pressure on yourself to have, I don't know, a top 10 or 20 verses out of the Bible memorized. Yes, know this book, absolutely. But the thing that's going to get people's attention is when you tell them about God's love for you what he's done for you, your story. 
That's the thing that will cause people to learn. That's the thing that will cause Jews and others to come to Jesus when we tell them about how much he loves us. That gets people to learn. Verse 10, because you've kept my word of patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. That's encouraging, right? There's going to be a time of trial, but I'm not going to test you. You guys ever notice this? I've spent just, honestly, a disturbing amount of time in school and classes. Over 20 years of my life, I spent in school and in classes, and not once have I ever seen anyone walk in and hand a test to the teacher. Right? You go to class, and the teacher hands the test out to us, and we take them, and we turn them in. Now a lot of it's happening online, right? But no one tests the teacher. And John's saying this to the church. If I show up and you're already teaching about me, if you Christians are out teaching the world about me, you're not going to be tested. If you're already teaching when I get there, if you're already witnessing to me when I get there, I'm not going to test the teacher. 3.11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. When's he coming? Soon. <laughs> the word is taku. It's actually a different word than we looked at last week. It means kind of the same thing, soon or quickly. When is it? We don't know. And the angels don't know. It's not about when. It's about being ready. Think about it this way. We absolutely need to continue to pray for the people in the Carolinas Right, that are facing the remnants of what was the hurricane, now it's called a tropical depression. And those people are still suffering, even though they had days and days of notice. Contrast that with an earthquake. No notice. Just happens. So when do you get ready? Before it comes. That's John's message. When Jesus comes, it will be too late to get ready. Get ready now. So as we think about preparing for emergencies, you go get water now. You get supplies now. When it comes to belief in Jesus Christ, you do that now. The time to make the changes are now. Verse 12. If you conquer, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You'll never go out of it. I'll write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Love that image of us as a pillar. Think about pillars in general. They're those really strong structures, right, that hold buildings up. And they had them in the temple. They held the temple up. And what he's saying to us is that you're a pillar if we're holding up the name of God. The name of God, the name of Jesus, the real Holy Spirit. If we're doing that, we're a pillar. We're a strong thing that he can build his house on. But we've got to be holding up his name. Verses 13 to 14. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. Laodicea, the one city that I struggle so much to say, had a lot of this. We had a lot of money, and that is impacting what's going on in the churches. And so verses 15 and 16, uh, verses have become quite famous, and an image that's become quite famous and often misused says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you're either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Powerful image. And for the people in Laodicea, it was quite a literal image. If you were there, you would see something like this. This is Hierapolis. It's a hot spring that still exists today. People still visit the hot springs today. And as you might imagine, there is water that cascades down out of Hierapolis and it is quite hot. And this hot spring is right across from you if you're in Laodicea. And that water cascades down the hill, and then it reaches the city of Laodicea. And the temperature of the water, the temperature of the water when it gets there is lukewarm. And so he's using a very literal image when he's talking about this. He's saying just as that water gets to you, and by the time it gets to you, it is weak, it is useless, Take a stand. Think about it this way. If you aren't going to stand for something, just sit down. 
What he's saying to the church is you've got to pick a side. There's good, there's evil. There's true, there's false. There's Jesus, there's Satan, and you have to pick. And if you're not going to take a stand, just sit down. You are lukewarm, like that water that gets to you from right across the way. Verse 17. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. Why use these three descriptors? So remember, there's a lot of money here, okay? They thought they were very, very wealthy. And John says, you're not wealthy. You're poor. Because you don't have Jesus inside your heart. That thing that doesn't fit inside your wallet, inside your bank account. You're poor. Laodicea was famous. They had a medical school. One of the things they were making was an eye salve. This salve was used for people's eyes. They thought it helped their vision. And John says, you're not famous for making eye salve. It doesn't mean you are blind. You can't see anything. I don't care what you put on your eyes. You don't see things like Jesus sees things. So you are blind. And you're naked. The city had a lot of money because they had a lot of clothing manufacturers. They were cranking out all this clothing. And John says, I don't care what you make. You are naked because you're not wearing Jesus. So you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked because you are not having Jesus in your heart, seeing like Jesus, and putting on Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It's a weird image to think about or associate with Jesus, buying from Jesus. We can get these things from Jesus so that we can have, so that we can be clothed, so that we can see. Think about Jesus. I don't think about him selling me anything, right? So what's this all about? It's weird to think about Jesus as a source of wealth, but try to picture this as a wealth, again, that doesn't fit in the wallet, doesn't fit in a bank account. It's a resource that goes into our heart. It goes into our mind, and it should flow out of that. And we can do this. We can get this from Jesus. But we have to remember there's a very, very high cost for doing that. In a little bit, we're going to take communion. And we're going to remember the cost that Jesus paid. But right now, I want you to remember what Jesus told his disciples. He said, I want you to leave everything and follow me. So if we buy from Jesus, we want him inside of us completely, there's an incredibly high cost. And as we do that, verse 19, to instruct us, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Disciplines those whom I love. Church, this is a great reminder, there has never been a perfect church. We are not perfect. No other church in Albany is perfect. And there's a lot of good churches here. No perfect church anywhere on earth. Not now, never has been. It's not about perfection, it's about persistence. It's continuing to follow Jesus, to seek him, to seek his word for what we should be doing. On Sunday, during the week, every program, every season, every event, is this is what Jesus have us do. That's what it looks like to follow the Lord. Not about being perfect, but persisting in following him. And when we don't, there might be some discipline on the way. Now, for those of you who have been disciplined, which is hopefully all of us, right? We know there's not a lot of fun to be disciplined. And for those of you who have disciplined others, you know that's not a lot of fun either. It's just not a lot of fun to give or receive discipline. And yet it says here that I do that, that the Lord disciplines us because he loves us. How could that be? Answer this question. What is worse than discipline? Bingo. No discipline. Abandonment. And God's never going to do that. Never going to abandon you. No good parent would, right? They're going to discipline you, even if they don't like it, even if it's not fun, because they know it's good for you. And he's going to do it because he's never going to abandon you. Ever. Because that's not what a good parent does. What he does is, verse 20, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in to you and eat with you and you with me. Reminds me of this famous picture. I've seen this 
picture of Jesus knocking at the door in so many homes. It was in my parents' house growing up, and it's this idea of Jesus always knocking. Always there. Not like two knocks and he leaves. He's just going to stand there. He's going to knock, and he's going to knock, and he's going to knock. But it's up to us to open the door. We've got to go to the door and open it and let him in. But he is always knocking. Always knocking. And if you've answered, awesome. But if you know someone who hasn't, remind them. He's always knocking at the door. Verses 21-22. To the one who conquers, I'll give a place with me on my throne. Just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now this is an idea. Jesus is saying he's got a place on the throne for you. Not because you've earned it or I've earned it, but because he has earned it. And he's reserved a spot for you. And you think about how cool that is, remember the high cost of that throne. Let's think about that as we take communion this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this book. This remarkable reminder of what you have in store, what you expect, and how much you love us. God, I pray that we will be a people that seeks you, that doesn't wait for tomorrow that make, to make changes, that we look to change now, that we look towards you now. We see you as the open door that we just want to run through. And the reason we want to do that is because of what you, Jesus, did for us on the cross so long ago. We remember the high cost that you paid to get to the throne, and that was giving your life for us. So as we take the bread this morning, we remember the body of Jesus Christ broken for us. As we take the cup of juice, we remember your blood, Jesus, poured out for us and for all at such a cost. We thank you, we love you, and we do this in your name, Jesus. Amen.